and welcome to Rivercast. This is One on One with Stan Russo. Our guest coming to us from New York City is Stan Russo. He's the author of the book, The Jack the Ripper Suspects, 70 Persons Cited by Investigators and Theorists. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks for being on. This is one of the first of hopefully many one-on-one interviews that myself and others will conduct with uh, people who are a part of the field of Ripperology, and um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I hope it's enjoyable for the listeners, and I appreciate Stan being the guinea pig on this the, the first attempt at, at this kind of uh, podcast format. So, um, Stan, um, you wrote the book uh, the Jack, on Jack the Ripper suspects. Um, let's go through a, a few of them and um, let uh, myself and the listeners know your opinion on them. First, I want to start off with, with Kosminski. Um, he's uh, touted by many in the field as, sh- as someone who should be the leading police suspect. Um, and others dis- would dis- dispute that. So uh, what, what would you, <laughs> what's your opinion on Kosminski? Uh, well, just to say, John, you couldn't, you couldn't have picked a, uh, a more controversial suspect than Kosminski. Uh, I guess he is considered the leading police suspect, and I think that's an absolute uh, error. And the reason why I believe it's an error is, uh, and I've had discussions with some of the Kosminski advocates and the advocates of... Anderson's theory of Kosminski and just to clarify there is a distinct difference between a person who believes Aaron Kosminski committed these murders and a person who thinks that Anderson's suspect is the best suspect for Jack the Ripper we have and and I think that that uh, difference goes by the wayside way too often but uh, I mean in Kosminski which is one of the reasons I try to avoid putting a first name on Kosminski when I when I discuss, uh, I mean, we know that Anderson um, had a, his Polish Jew suspect, which was later identified as someone named Kosminski. So, I, 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 th- I think, uh, yeah, you know, that, that's that is in direct response to the identification of Aaron Kosminski as the Kosminski, and there being plenty of holes within it being Aaron Kosminski. So I, th- I think the, the fact that it's now known as Kosminski and not Aaron Kosminski is one of those, you know, uh, gut check reactions or gut shot reactions to uh, naming the suspect Kosminski as Aaron Kosminski and then not being able to really put that into a cohesive theory. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to say Kosminski was the suspect, you're really talking about Aaron Kosminski. Uh, not, not that there weren't any other Kosminskis, but everything that we have from Anderson links to if this person is Kosminski, which there are errors without, you know, there are errors throughout the Swanson marginalia, and, you know, you really have to bring in McNaughton when you're talking about Anderson, which a lot of authors don't really, you know, do. Or a lot of uh, researchers, you know, don't really do. They don't realize the importance of uh, McNaughton when discussing Kosminski. And uh, using the time frames of how his memos were written 
and Anderson's uh, writings and how they reflect the case regarding Kosminski. McNaughton is a really key figure. Uh, and, you know, his main suspect, McNaughton's main suspect, Druitt, was Jack the Ripper for 20 years until people realized there's really no case there. And, you know, talking about Kosminski without talking about McNaughton is kind of missing half the battle. But, uh, you know, Kosminski's a person who is basically a feeble-minded idiot. You know, no offense to anybody who's related to him, but that's the general thing about him. And, you know, he was eventually put into an asylum, and there's only one recorded, uh, you know, document that he ever was, you know, ever attacked a woman. However, it is with a knife. And I think that in a in a broader sense, that may be the reason why, you know, Kosminski is the suspect today. This, you know, this little notation in somebody's notebook about interviewing this person and how one of his relatives had mentioned that he had once come after somebody with a knife, but, the, you know, the person was, he was basically an imbecile, you know, an imbecile, and, you know, I, I fail to see how he was Jack the Ripper, and... I see many of the holes within Anderson's theory, specifically the fact that Anderson was a special branch officer, and a lot of people don't recognize that. Anderson was basically a spymaster, and the reason why he was assistant uh, commissioner is because he was in the special branch, and, and people don't realize that. There's, it, it's possibly one of the worst positions for him to be in, Unless there was a, there was an absolute specific reason for him to be there, I mean he's taking over from the main person in the special branch, and until he leaves the country, in uh, I believe on September seventh or eighth, there there are documented meetings between Monroe, who is you know the main special branch guy, Anderson and Henry Matthews on the murders. So you're talking about after one murder, there's daily meetings about what's going on, Anderson as just a police officer, is not a credible theory. And I think there's too much evidence against that to buy into a Polish Jew suspect. There's much more to Anderson and Monroe, and Monroe's connection with Anderson, and also Anderson's connection with McNaughton, and those memos, to really understand when you're touting Aaron Kosminski or, or unnamed Kosminski as a suspect. What um, kind of um, evidence are you, do you cite when you characterize Kosminski as an imbecile? Because other things have come to light here in, in uh, the, within the last year that that maybe show that he wasn't the gutter dwelling um, individual that was, is, was characterized by the police. Um, I'm speaking specifically of his uh, being cited for walking his dog um, without a leash or muzzle or whatever that was and he appeared in court and paid his fine said he uh had to wait to pay his fine because of uh, for religious reasons uh and and so we have on the one side uh the police characterization of of uh Kosminski, but then that seems to fly in the face of some of the press report uh um that came out um well uh, you know again the, a lot of the new stuff I think is brilliant, and I think the more we investigate the people we know of at that time, 
the the broader we the broader the case becomes and in effect the better the case is on an investigative level when i call Aaron kosminski an imbecile i'm using the kosminski polish jew theory right. to cite him as an imbecile and in going back to druitt druitt really you know originally was thought of as a doctor he was also thought of as 10 years older than he was. He was also thought of as Michael instead of Montague. And he was also thought to commit suicide immediately after the murders. And through uh, the investigative work of many great researchers, we now know that Druitt is, and Druitt could be Jack the Ripper, but we know that the case against him is not that strong. So if, if information has come to light regarding Aaron Kosminski that helps... Uh, destroy or actually helps defeat the Kosminski Polish Jew imbecile theory, you know, I, I'm glad for it because I don't buy it. Right, okay. So, so you're, um, so you're just, you, you're just using the characterizations of, of uh, the contemporary police officials at the time, not, not your personal opinion on what, what was going on. Um, um, uh, and uh, as far as Kosminski was concerned, no, I'm, I'm more I'm more quoting the theory. And right. again, this this is a, another important thing to understand. Where uh, you can come up with a theory on a suspect that can be totally wrong, and the suspect still could be the murderer. However, when you have a suspect and you have a theory about that suspect, and we I think we all have to admit that. The theory behind Kosminski, whether you want to call him Aaron or unnamed Kosminski, is Anderson's Polish Jew theory, which cites him as an imbecile and a guttural, you know, a, a person who's walking around eating garbage from the street. Uh, I think that's the that's where you have to descriptively a attack that description to show that the theory in itself is flawed. Then you can work on Aaron Kosminski or unnamed Kosminski as an actual suspect outside of that theory, but I believe that a lot of people are tied to the theory that Anderson is the most knowledgeable officer on the case, therefore, everything he said was correct, when we know that's not the truth. And that is interesting how those uh, initial police suspects work out, because, um, you know, a Kosminskiite, as they're called, could feel you know the, um, they they see that they're hampered by the um, the description of uh, Kosminski or the Polish Jew that Anderson gave, um, and but then when it it could come to light that Kosminski was actually more able-bodied and more with it mentally than he's been characterized in the past, you would think that that would in some way to Kosminski bolster their candidacy, and the same with Druitt. Um, um, Andy Spalick has, you know, um, done a lot of work to um, to to rehabilitate Druitt's character, but at the same time, um, I don't want to miss, but in my opinion, to uh, make uh, uh, the case for Druitt stronger than it has been presented to us by the police officials at the time. So, um, well, I I, fi I find that I mean, again, I, I'm not too familiar with uh, Andy Spalick's work. You know, I, I have read a little bit, but not a lot, and I think that's admirable, and I think that it's actually the correct way to attack a suspect like Druitt, who, 
within the framework of the theory that promoted Druitt as a suspect, causing that or getting the correct information that destroys that theory again does not necessarily mean that doesn't mean that that Druitt was not Jack the Ripper. So. In get the more information you gather about a suspect, the better it is for everybody. If you gather information that destroys a previously existing theory on Druid, and then you develop a better theory on Druid based on your new information, which can be documented, I, I think that's admirable, and I and I do think it's the the you know the progression of the case. In Kosminski's case, I tend to feel that with all the new evidence there's too much of a chance that you're going to move from Aaron Kosminski, not you personally, but you, it's going to be a move from Aaron Kosminski to unnamed Kosminski just based on Anderson, which I think is a flawed theoretical premise. Right. Um, and um, and it, I, I don't want to characterize your opinion, but I, I, I have a feeling that, that the situation with Kosminski kind of borders closely on the um him just becoming the unnamed local man uh, once you have so much doubt into the initial police uh um police officials opinions on this suspect more more doubt is created when more information is discovered then then kosminski drops out of being a, a specific individual and into the a catch-all category of of uh local Polish Jew. Right. And and I think, uh, and I'm glad you brought up the unknown local man theory. Uh, I think something has to be clarified about that. It's not a theory. It's a construct. And, you know, uh, the message boards are, and, and I'm probably stepping ahead of myself, but the message boards are, are both very good in theory and becoming bad in practice because you're having circular arguments between people where opinions are being masqueraded as fact. And that's never good. Because when you have a one-on-one -on -one debate, or if you're in front of an audience, and you have an opinion, and someone challenges that opinion with an alternative opinion, you understand that your opinion is not fact. It is just an opinion. You're never going to challenge the fact that 2 plus 2 is 4. But if someone has an opinion that 2 plus 2 is 5, you can challenge that fact. On the message boards, there's no qualification of information that seems to be being being put on the information out there, so it becomes circular arguments. ULM theory is not a theory. It's basically, uh, and to be as brutal as possible, which I think is necessary, ULM, the unknown local man, is a denial of ability to move forward in the case. Now, Ad, there are a lot of branches of ULM. There are advocates. There are possible advocates. There are people who leave open the possibility, which is different than possible advocates. But it seems to me like a hardened ULM advocate is a person that came to this case with the specific idea in mind of solving it, realized, came to the conclusion that the case is way beyond their ability, and then said, well, nothing out there is something that I can jump on with the suspects. Therefore, because I can't jump on that, it has to be somebody that hasn't been named before. Uh, 
not to get too deep into psychology, but that's a level of insecurity that does not belong in an investigation. And also, more importantly towards the case, it does not belong in an active investigation. An active investigation is designed to get information about suspects and get as much factual background about a suspect or suspects so that you can possibly lead towards a, a solution. I think that there is so much within the field of ripperology that has gone away from solution that it's almost become the minority to think that you can get a solution. No one's saying it's easy, but the more people that go away from solution-based investigation, the harder it becomes for everybody else 30 years down the road. And I, I say 30 years down the road because I'm admitting it's not easy. It's going to take a lot of work. And I think that ULM advocates, the hardened advocates, do not want to do the work. And they just want to sit back and say, you know what, I'm involved in the discussion because I'm proposing something that nobody can challenge. You cannot challenge a negative. If someone says it has to be someone that hasn't named, the only way to challenge that is by actually getting the identity. So what it uh, essentially is is a safe way to continue to be involved without doing any extra work. If a police officer was involved in an active investigation and performed that kind of work, they would be off the job immediately. And I think that's what sums up ULM to a T. Um, just to play devil's advocate, though, um, there, there's, um, let's say, half a million um, individuals 120 years ago living in the East End or in the vicinity um, who and and we know um, well let's say two let's say we know David Cohen and Aaron Kosminski um, well and I'll add uh, Severin Koslowski um, amongst those what what some would say would be uh, unknown individuals I mean if if um, if if you have only a half a dozen uh, suspects um, and none of those suspects um, in your opinion fit the bill um, and ripperology is so far removed 120 years removed from the individuals who actually lived in in throughout through the autumn of terror how how else is one to um, you know uh, reconcile you know well I, I, I believe that it, there's a possibility like Paul Begg has said that this individual was just a nameless faceless um, at, the, at the time and today um, who uh, passed away in a casual ward somewhere unnoticed and unloved and unmissed um, you know isn't that a plausible theory as opposed to say believing Ostrog was the Ripper or well uh, it, it's a very plausible theory with some modifications and the modifications are you're saying that or you know there, there's an argument out there saying that there's a possibility that Jack the Ripper may not have been named as of present 
that we know of is and is on our suspect list and could be one of those persons who are considered unnamed that's a strong that's a possibility i don't want to say strong because i believe in two uh, my two suspects but there is without a doubt the possibility that the person who committed these murders has not been named yet that is a direct that is definitely different than what is being hawked and i'll use that word because that's what's going on as the ulm theory ulm theory is not going out there and looking for people they're just saying it was someone no one can find what that does is it eliminates their work ethic now i've heard that ap wolf is going out and actually looking for suspects that's admirable i find that that's proper and and i applaud him for it what i don't applaud is people who promote something that requires them to do absolutely no work that to me is pointless and unnecessary and i think that's one of the reasons why the field is not moving forward at all because in your opinion those individuals vastly outnumber um people doing real work on the case absolutely and uh, you know i i touched on it when i i asked uh, when i asked frog moody that question that uh did i and i'll repeat the question for anyone who hadn't heard that one did do i think or does he think that uh incorporating an entertainment aspect to this unsolved murder has that brought in an element whose main goal is not finding a solution and therefore hurting the field together like all together and and his response was more of you know uh, anything that brings people to the field is good and i disagree and I, and i may be paraphrasing him i think we were on the same wavelength with it but uh you know there's a reason why certain sus- uh respected academics won't be a part of this and that's something that ripperology if it wants to remain an academic uh endeavor has to look inward at itself and realize the problem and eradicate it and part of this problem is there are people out there who are hawking theories and really not theories because there's no work behind it a theory is coming up with an idea and then presenting that idea with research behind it there's no research behind this the research behind this is based on other people's failures that's not research that's just basic analysis uh, you know many books cite how uh dr thomas cream is not a prominent suspect anymore i would go to the extent that he's not a suspect anymore but to to derive a theory based on the fact that dr cream is not a suspect anymore isn't really doing any work and i think that's what ulm is advocating and i think that's what hurt that's what's hurting the field as an academic endeavor right there's a general um assumption that um this case will never be solved to quote unquote everybody's satisfaction are you uh in agreement with that statement uh i'm actually in total disagreement with that statement and i think that that statement uh i mean i think that if you go in with that statement you're going to fail uh if i you know 
I can throw a hundred analogies out there. If I go into anything saying that I can't do it, guess what's going to happen? I'm not going to do it. If you go into an investigation and you say it can't be solved, you're never going to solve it. And I understand that it's difficult to solve. I came into the I came into this field with the intention of solving it, and I've ran into a, I've run into a wall. Now, since I came up with my theory and developed it, I have not found any information that has thrown a a bad light or a negative light on my theory, and I've not found one piece of documentation or or information that negates my theory. That's not the same as proving my theory. I understand that. But if I go into this saying, I don't think the case can be solved, and I present a theory, I'm basically a hypocrite, and I'm not calling anybody out on it. I understand that it's hard. You know what? There's other things to do if this is too hard, and that may come off very arrogant, but you know, there's a reason why I'm not, I'm only an amateur astrophysician, because I don't have the ability yet to, to teach astrophysics. So when stuff is too hard, move on. Or get smarter and work harder to make it less hard. That's my opinion. And going into it with that, you know, the case cannot be solved. One has to question why someone would go into this case saying the case, has, the case cannot be solved and yet will still investigate this case. I have to question the credibility of that person. Um. And, and in your opinion, the, uh, someone who would say the case uh, cannot be solved, um, you see very little uh, investigation coming from, from the ULMers. Um, right. So that brings you back to, I think, the, the kind of the point that you were making earlier is that, and, and, and this is, must be a divide in the field, um, you want to solve the unsolved murders of of women in the East End of London, and maybe others are becoming involved with this case purely for the entertainment value. And and um, I mean, what else? Like you were saying, what 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 else would motivate um, someone to become involved in the hunt for Jack the Ripper if they? Uh, were convinced that it would never be solved. Uh, they they're in it for the spectacle. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, it, it's a it's a tricky question to ask without becoming uh, ostracized in in a community that, in in all fairness, there are some great people, but in a majority that I don't care to be a part of. And I guess what I'm saying is, there are people who acknowledge the fact that they cannot contribute and yet have to contribute due to their own in you know own shortcomings and when people call them out on it they get incredibly defensive people have challenged my theory in public when i gave a lecture at the 2002 uh, jack the ripper conference uh people have challenged my opinion Online, people have challenged my opinion when I've met them in person because they've asked me to meet them. And I've always been cordial. And when you come face-to-face -face with somebody, you know, you're very cordial. This online message board system is, is defeating itself. And it usually is being defeated by people who are of this opinion 
that it cannot be solved and therefore I'm going to be a part of something that destroys something that I know can't be solved. I'm going to make it my goal to go in there and cause enough damage so that they realize that I'm right and that it can't be solved because it really is at that point about the person trying to do that and they're not going to be satisfied until everyone comes out and says, you know what, this person's right, it will never be solved, case closed, it can't be solved. And, and I think the message boards feed into that and I think, I don't want to say, I don't want to be corny and say you're doing a disservice to five or six or seven, I believe, women who were murdered in 1888 and one in 1889, but, you know, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, you know, going back to the ULM for a second, uh, and I'm not a, I'm not a big fan, as, as most know me, about of serial murder. I came into this because it was an unsolved murder. Obviously, it's a serial murder, but I don't know a lot about, you know, Ted Bundy or... John Wayne Gacy or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer because these people are caught so I really didn't care to learn much about them and I think that the perfect analogy for a ULMer uh, to understand is and, and this goes in what AP I believe is doing is with the son of Sam and I only know this because I'm a, a crazy movie buff and I saw the movie and then it got me a little interested in it is that David Berkowitz who was the son of Sam was the ULM until he was finally caught but it has to take it to that next level and there are people out there who don't want to take it to that next level whether they don't realize that they can because of their lack of ability or they realize their lack of ability and are upset about it and they don't want people taking it to that next level therefore it, it just it's just basically an intrusion into an investigation by somebody who wants to halt that investigation so to speak okay um, let's uh, get into your theory that you've mentioned a few times um, which is that Walter Sickert and JK Stevens in tandem uh, were responsible for the Ripper murders. Um, I am not aware of a, some of the. I'm aware of some of your theory, and and um, you keep some of it close to your breast. Uh, but let's uh, let's set the record straight and um, and explain um, where uh, where you why you believe that these two individuals are responsible for the Ripper crimes. Uh, well, again, you know, if we had 10 or 12 days straight, I could go into the entire theory. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't want to say it's just a feeling because it absolutely isn't. It's based on a lot of information that is looked at in a different way. Uh, and, and I have to use some, you know, some analogies here. There's a person out there who isn't famous in the field but is well-known and I once, in, I once asked that person who they actually thought Jack the Ripper was. And that person said that they knew who Jack the Ripper was as a person but didn't know a name. And I think that that's a major problem. And of, of, of course would never reveal the person's name. But I think what the problem is, is people have a mindset of who Jack the Ripper has to be. Jack the Ripper has to be an unknown, crazed lunatic or 
it doesn't make sense to them. There are people who come into this case thinking that Jack the Ripper had to be a woman hater to commit his crimes because the opposite is unthinkable to them. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately for me, the opposite is never unthinkable to me. Now, I'm not saying I'm some genius, but I look at everything from, or try to look at everything from every different angle. Once you start looking at stuff from different angles, different answers pop up and different questions pop up. And then those further questions can be answered by continuing to look at stuff in a broader approach versus just saying, Jack the Ripper hated women, he was a lunatic, he was crazy, and something happened to make him stop. Now that's what has been going on for 100 years, and it hasn't produced anything. It's produced a lot of suspects who don't have enough uh, backing to get them as the top suspect or get them in a court of law as a guilty person. However, if you look at it differently, you start to see little things in the field open up. You know, a lot of people are promoting Klozowski, you mentioned earlier. A lot of people are uh, promoting him as the top suspect. This is also another safe way by saying, well, Aberline thought he was the sus thought he was Jack the Ripper, so that's good enough for me and, and I don't have to do any work. Well, what they're not saying is that for some reason Aberline was in the West End in eighteen eighty nine, still actively investigating the case. That's on record. And nobody knows why. And I don't understand why things like this aren't approached. Uh there's an answer for that, and you have to understand why he's in the West End, because this is the person who was actively working the ground investigation. And this leads you to other things that pop up that can be answered. You know, why wasn't Elizabeth Stride mutilated? There was enough time. I mean, th the argument that there wasn't enough time is a bad argument, because in the amount of time it took Jack the Ripper to mutilate Catherine Eddowes in that back in that un, you know dimly lit square he could have done three times the work to Elizabeth Stride before Dean Schultz pulled in so to argue that he was stopped is a bad argument now if you consider Elizabeth Stride a victim and the fact that many people have alternatively gone and said she isn't a victim which is admirable but it hasn't proven anything. It hasn't gone anywhere. You have to look at the Stride murder differently. And looking at the Stride murder differently, you have to under you have to start asking questions, well, why? Why wasn't she mutilated? Why was she just cut? Why would you know why do these things happen? And in looking at all this, you come up with a pattern. And in investigating and reading every book on the subject up to 2003, which is when I finished my book, uh, you start to find authors who have little things, little things here and there that are starting to slowly pull stuff together. And then once you start to pull that stuff together, you start to do more research. And, and I know that's really a vague way of saying it, but uh, it just leans towards these two people working together to try to get revenge on three people and you know using the masonic conspiracy theory the royal conspiracy theory 
as a default incorrect theory, which is what it is, you can't just throw that out. You have to say, well, let me ask you this. Why was it even brought up if it fails? Obviously, there is some truth behind it. There are people that exist within the theory that, that play no part in the theory that shouldn't be in a theory if it's totally made up. There's no reason to mix that fact with fiction and mix the fiction part of it that can be so easily refuted if you're going to search for facts that that do help. So, I, I guess in trying to, to bring the answer together, there's a reason for a lot of things. And you have to look past the failures. And you have to look, why, why did it take... Why did it take until 1973 for Joseph Gorman to reveal what he knew? The story is he knew back in 1939 when he was 14. The story is that it was handed down to him from Walter Sickert when Walter Sickert was three years prior to dying. Uh, the story is that he had had this information for so long, but there's really no reason why he waited until 1973. In the 50s, the, the late 50s, Jack the Ripper was all the talk. They had finally, you know, had a big documentary on him, and, you know, it, people were talking about him. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of books came out in the 60s. In fact, a book came out in the 60s that actually named Montague John Druitt. You know, it, it wasn't really not in the back of the world. In 1970, Dr. Thomas Stowell came out and said... You know, it was Suspect X, which we now know was Prince Eddie, which is a bad, a flawed theory. But this skyrocketed, you know, Ripperology into, you know, a worldwide thing. And still he didn't come out and say anything. He waited until 1973. Well, why did he wait until 1973? There's an answer for that. And I could give you the answer, but people who are anti-going past failures to try and find truth, won't, won't care anyway. You know, I, I'm really going in a roundabout way, and, and I'm trying not to reveal what I have to bring out in the book, but there's just too much stuff going on with Walter Sickert, in the and not just the information that he gave to Joseph Gorman, but in, in the information that he gave to others, in the information that has been recorded about him by, by second parties, by third parties, by people who knew these second and third parties, by, you know, so many other things to say that he was not involved somehow. That's not the same as saying he was Jack the Ripper. It's the same as saying that he has a very important role in these murders, whether it is he knew the murderer or whether it is he was the sole murderer or whether he was an accomplice. And the information that I gathered based on understanding past those failures, what they could really mean, you, you start to see that there was an accomplice. And if you're going to go back into the 1880s and the late 1880s, you have to find somebody who he would have trusted, who had a purpose, who had a reason for doing what was done. And in that, you have to find the motive. And I've always said that the motive is the most important part of who the murderer is. It's more important to learn why the murders were done than to learn who was the murderer. Because I could say it was Joe, I could say it was Walter Sickert 
and James K. Stephen, and you could say, so what? I don't believe you. But if I say it was Walter Sick and James K. Stephen, because the murders were done because of this, and here's why, and here's why, and here's why, and here's why, now you start to think, maybe, and you start to learn more about it, and it lends more credibility. So in researching the whys of this, it led me to J.K. Stephen. And, um, we, okay, let's backtrack a little bit. When, when you uh, mentioned Aberlein being in the West End, you believe he was investigating Stevens? Yes. And, uh, and, and very important, he wasn't just investigating, well, he wasn't investigating Stephen. He was more investigating someone close to Stephen who, through what has been said and the information we have can be linked back to the murder at Miller's court in description. And I think this is why it's important to understand, I feel, that the murder of Alice McKenzie is a ripper murder. There's a reason why she was murdered. I believe she was murdered specifically to get Aberline away from the, the, the West End. And I think she was murdered by J.K. Stephen alone because I think that he knew that with Aberline in the West End, it was eventually going to lead back to him. And I think another Ripper murder would have brought him back. And it didn't. And what did it do? It led to the Cleveland Street scandal where we have the inclusion of Prince Eddie. And Prince Eddie definitely is linked to J.K. Stephen. But what's important to know is that uh, Prince Eddie is not only a lookalike to an extent of Druitt, but someone that is linked to J.K. Stephen and is identified by his nickname as being in the area of the Miller's Court murder. Now, I, I'm not saying it was Prince Eddie. I know it wasn't. He has, you know, there's been reports that he was away I understand that. However, I think that the second man, Walter Sickert, who was an accomplished actor and a master of disguise, and that's on record, that's, that's an indisputable fact, made himself look like this person. And the eyewitnesses that describe this person where you can walk around and get away with whatever you wanted to do, describe this person and... Then Abilene is in the West End looking for this person and happens to find him. Trying to get him out is, is a main goal. So I, I understand that's a little convoluted and it, it works a lot better on paper because there's just 30 other things that go into it that are, you really have to be broken down point by point. But I, I think getting Aberline out of the West End to get him away from Prince Eddie who would have eventually brought him to Stephen was was the main reason why Alice McKenzie was murdered. Um, so let's just clarify for my sake. You're saying that Sickert um, dressed himself up as, as Astrakhan Man? Uh, I, I think that, well, well the, the goal, the, the to identification... To appear to be um, who... Well, the, the Nick, are you the, wanting the, to hold that to your your breast pocket? Well, I, I guess the, the the what I'm trying to get at is the nickname of Eddie is collars and cuffs, and and 
it's a well-known nickname for those who've actually taken the time to look into his life. And again, you know, it's not just read the royal conspiracy theory, realize how it's been, uh, you know, flawed and discredited, and realize that a lot of people realize it's discredited and forget everything else that has to do with anybody involved. You know, I took the time to go in and read histories on this man and try to understand this man just for the purpose of in case something comes up. And, you know, one of his nicknames was Collars and Cuffs. There is a an eyewitness description of somebody with white collars and white cuffs that could be connected to Prince Eddie. Now, I don't know if it's, you know, you can't connect it to Prince Eddie, but you have this person who was seen harassing a woman in Miller's court two days before the murder. You know, it could be nothing, but it could be a link. And the next thing you have is Aberline in the West End for no reason. Why is he in the, why is he working the Jack the Ripper case and then working a prostitution ring for male boys, I mean, for young boys? I don't get that. There's no, nobody's ever understood why. And, you know, and people can say, well, they took him off because there was no activity. Well, that's not true. There was the activity of the Alice McKenzie murder. There was uh, the Elizabeth Jackson murder. There was still, you know, there were still murders going on that possibly were linked to Jack the Ripper. This is one of the reasons why the, I think the David Cohen, I'm, I'm pretty sure the David Cohen theory does not work because of the Alice McKenzie murder. Uh, David Cohen theory is that he was Jack the Ripper and he was Leather Apron, Leather Apron as a different as a different name and his being put away in December stopped the murders. But if you go by that theory and state that Anderson knew it was him, then there's no reason why Anderson calls in a doctor to investigate Alice McKenzie if he believed that Jack the Ripper was already put away. So I mean, th there's a lot that goes into this. And even though the Alice McKenzie murder happened... Aberline's still in the West End following his leads. And a lot of that has to go with this four-hour interview with Joseph Barnett and Aberline where nothing gets settled. Now, think about this. Current day standards. A suspect who's close to the murder, who's close to the, the victim, is brought in for a four-hour investigation and not one thing is recorded. Do you think there's something suspicious about that? Sure. Well, so do I, and I think that, you know, I think that he told Aberline something, and of course you can't prove it because nothing was mentioned, but what you can prove is find out where Aberline goes after that. Find out some things about what Aberline does after that, and then you start to realize, well, does this, who does this link back to? Well, guess who it links back to? It links back to Sickert. Because Sickert knew Mary Kelly, and I don't believe Mary Kelly was the woman killed. But, you know, and, and there's, there's actual proof, not proof, but there's actual, you know, testimony that people will disregard because they would rather have it be neat and tidy, a, a, a stone-cold lunatic woman-hater than actually examine evidence properly and say, you know what, something else is going on. It doesn't have to be what I say is going on, but something else is going on outside of what we originally thought. Um, 
um, let's. Uh, okay, so you're having um, Druid, um, by no coincidence, um, being brought into this case as a police suspect because of his resemblance to Prince Eddie. Um, well, let me let me just cut in for a second. Uh, I think Druid is brought into this case specifically by McNaughton, and I think from what we know, McNaughton said he got private information. Now, this private information has never been discovered, and there's been plenty of theories about it, and most of those most of those theories have failed. Paul Feldman actually came up with the possibility that the private information given to McNaughton was given to him by J.K. Stephen in a totally unrelated fashion to my theory. Now, Paul Feldman believed it was James Maybrick. He actually proposed J.K. Stephen as the person who gave McNaughton the private information without trying to promote either Walter Sickert or J.K. Stephen. Right. So there's no, agen there's no agenda there. Taking for that, there's a, there's a strong possibility that one of the two of them, who both knew McNaughton, could have passed along the information that, hey, this is, you know, if they were still researching, let's say that, let's say Aberline thought it was Prince Eddie, okay? There's actual, uh, I don't want to say documentation, but there's actual hearsay evidence that Aberline always thought it was somebody high up and that he can you know he confirmed this to a number of people who really never had their you know uh, memory challenged or never had their credibility questioned outside of the only thing that Aberline that they say Aberline said to them let's say Aberline thought it was Prince Eddie and incorrectly thought it was Prince Eddie guess guess who that leads to it leads to JK Stephen because anytime you go after Prince Eddie the next person you're looking for, if you if it was two people, and you go after Prince Eddie, you got to find the second guy. And the second guy, if you go after Prince Eddie, is J.K. Stephen. The perfect candidate to give McNaughton information is J.K. Stephen. Now it could have been Sickert, it could have been J.K. Stephen, could have been somebody else. But who's the perfect person to give them to take their mind or to get them away from Prince Eddie? And that's Druitt. I mean, I think Druitt you know, is the is the perfect candidate because he can't defend himself at that point. He looked exactly like, you know, almost exactly like Prince Eddie. The two of them apparently knew each other. And there's no doubt that J.K. Stephen knew Druitt. And if J.K. Stephen knew Druitt, Walter Sickert knew Druitt. I mean, basically, J.K. Stephen and Walter Sickert were very close. And you can argue that everybody that they knew, everybody that each one of them knew... The other one did. And I think that's where you bring Tumblety into it as well. Right. I was just about to go there, actually. So uh, how, how is Tumblety involved in all this? Well, you could argue that Tumblety, uh, and I think the work that people have done on Tumblety from his past, really is important, and a lot of people disregard. You have to get a character of the man. Now, Tumblety was not Jack the Ripper. I, I think that... He's one of the more fashionable suspects, and I think that it's almost impossible for him to be Jack the Ripper. And I think the primary reason why is because he was being watched. And this is not just alluded to, it's perfectly stated in the Little Child Letter. And it's an analysis of the Little Child Letter that people look past. 
when Little Child says, whenever this man came to London, he was watched, watched closely. How does someone commit any one of these murders if they're watched closely? Also, Tumble T was possibly a Fenian, a Fenian, Fenian, Irish terrorist. Even if he was not an Irish terrorist, he would, he would have been a very braggadocious person. And we know that we know that from the history of his life, where wherever he was, he was a very bawdy figure. Excuse me, he liked to make uh, liked to make grand entrances. He liked to make more of himself than he was. Let's say he was the person responsible in the Fenian assassinations in in Phoenix Park, and Phoenix Park, which was originally, in, to my knowledge, introduced into the case by Nick Warren, and he deserves that credit, but. I think a lot of people disregard that because they don't see the bigger picture of the case. There's a Dr. Hamilton Williams, who may or may not be Tumblety, who smuggled the knives that were used to kill the two people in Phoenix Park by the Invincibles. Now, these two people were high-ranking English uh, officers, the same position that Arthur Balfour, Balfour had, uh, held at the time of the Ripper murders. If he was that person... And at six years past, he would have talked about it. You know, he, he would have mentioned it. He would have been, you know, I got away with it. That was just Tumble T's nature. Even if he wasn't, he would have made himself look more important than he was. Now, he was familiar with the West End. We know that for a fact because he was arrested on four counts of gross indecency in a West End from being in a West End brothel. Well, immediately when you talk West End and the brothel situation, now he's he can come into contact with Sickert and Stephen. To say that Sickert and Stephen, who knew that area backwards and forwards, knew knew everybody in that area, proven Sickert, you know, knew everybody in that area, would not have known the most braggadocious, bawdy figure in that area is to just ignore basic logic. Now, when you talk about Tumblety, you immediately, one of the things that pops up is perhaps he was that Irish terrorist. Well, if he was that Irish terrorist, they would have known about him, and that's why they watched him. That's proven further by, you know, uh, Little Child's letter. Well, there are other people who would have known that too, because it wasn't a secret. Believe me, you, you, can, you can get information very easily. If somehow this... Tumblety was being watched by everybody, he would make the perfect patsy to trick the police by thinking that he was involved somehow in these murders. When you start to look at that, more possibilities open up. Answers such as, why is Aberline even in the area? Okay, you can argue that he was in the area because he knew the ground, but he was a special branch man. Now, why was he seconded in after only one murder? Nobody, even at that time, connected Tabram to Nichols. Only the papers, and there was not that strong a connection. Almost nobody connected Emma Smith. Even if there was a strong connection between Tabram and Nichols, the, the murders were so distinct to bring in three special branch men, uh, three special branch men, to work three separate aspects of it seems unlikely, and they were ready at a moment's notice. They were there the hours after the body was discovered. Seems to me that they knew something was going on, 
and it relates to tumble tea. Now, if it relates to tumble tea, we know now that tumble tea wasn't involved, or we, or I believe tumble tea was not actually involved in the murders. And how you know that is, if he was involved in the murders, he wouldn't have been involved in all five. And from his history, once he's in at, at even the littlest amount of heat, he's out of there. The reason why he escaped or got, got out of London was, I think, finally he was questioned on these murders. And once you question somebody on, this, on these murders and he can't prove otherwise, I think they, they told him, you know, we know you didn't do it, but we want to know who did. We know you're involved. He had a habit of leaving when he thought he was in trouble. All right, so um, is it your opinion that Tumble Teeth supplied the um, weapons used in the Ripper attack? Um, it, since you're uh, um, seeming to link him with the Phoenix Park murders, and and, and um, also um, you have mentioned in the past that that you uh, believe that Tumble Teeth had some. Um, involvement in the sending of the Lusk letter in Kidney, Catherine Eddowes, um, whether he knew it or not. Um, comment on both of those two things. And then also, I mean, it's getting, um, and, and this is my, my uh, um, opinion, no offense, but it seems a little, it's bringing in a lot of, of, uh, it seems like Sickert and, and, and Stephen um, are trying to deflect blame on anywhere they, they could uh, possibly do it. And, 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 and those individuals that they deflected blame on have cropped up as suspects. So, I mean, you're linking them to uh, Eddie and Druitt and Tumbletee. Um. So uh, I, it, it's a huge, um, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it conspiracy theory, but um, it, it's to me it, se- it seems just uh, um, almost hard to believe that that. Uh, no, I, but I, anyway, go, go ahead, yeah. a- answer uh, the tumble tea. Get it, I, I'm uh, me being um, I, I don't I don't necessarily believe that tumble tea was Jack the Ripper, but I think he could. Some of my uh, uh, better days, I think he could be one of the the strongest suspects out there. So uh, go ahead and and, uh, clarify a little bit more on on how you believe Tumble T is is involved in this. Sure. Well, um, let me me first state that I don't think that Tumble T was involved in actual murders for Jack the Ripper, any of the Jack the Ripper murders. And in saying that with the knives... uh, the same knives, and this has been almost proven, that were used on Cavendish and Burke in the Phoenix Park murders are equivalent, are, are, I believe, are the same knives used in the Jack the Ripper murders. And I think that's the only link. I think that the link is uh, these were the same knives, and if Tumblety was responsible for supplying those knives to the Invincibles who committed the Phoenix Park murders, that's the link that Sickert and Steven used in order to get the special branch involved in investigating perhaps the wrong person. And it, it, it seems like a conspiracy, <clears throat> excuse me, it seems like a conspiracy only when it's 
you know, when it's not perfectly flushed out. It's a conspiracy in this fact that if two people are going to go around and commit murders and they find somebody that they can deflect the police off to, well, that's just that's just their way of doing it. And we know for a fact that the special branch was following Tumblety. They sent uh, Walter Andrews, we believe, to Canada to look for to look for information on Tumblety. You know, there were two other special branch men in the area gathering information. Uh, Anderson was a special branch man brought in. James Monroe, you know, was had given his reg- resignation in the beginning of August and didn't leave office till till the Nichols till the day of the Nichols murder and was repla- replaced by another special branch officer. You have memos from Henry Matthews to Evelyn Ruggles Bryce that intimate that Monroe knows more than the the police would even understand and if necessary Monroe can help them out you have Monroe's memoirs that state that they were actually investigating something in connection with the Jack the Ripper murders uh, that had to do with Irish terrorism so Tumblety I believe is the patsy for Sickert and Stephen and I think that there's a reason for that and the reason is they're trying to get revenge on a specific person within the special branch. And this leads me to the core of the theory on how they, they, were, they were trying all, to get... I, I would agree that if you, um, before you uh, reveal who the individual you think they're, they were targeting, if you're involving, if the, if the people that they are choosing to, to try to deflect this on uh, included the, the prince, uh, the prince's tutor, and uh, so an individual who is being followed um, by the special branch, then it does make uh, Sickert and, and Stephen, um, it does turn uh, it into political murders um, as opposed to sex, sexual murders. So sexual well, serial killings. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never been, you know, a fan of the, these women were murdered just because they're sexual bloodlust murders. And the reason why I've never been a fan of that, you know, theory is because it didn't lead anywhere. You know, you, you could actually comment on that theory by saying, so what? And not any disrespect to anyone who was murdered, you know, or any of their families. But, you know, you still have to go somewhere with that. And that theory has never gone anywhere. So possibly they were murdered for another reason. And, you know, with regards to tumble tea, you know, I you can argue, or I, I you know, I have argued in my theory that tumble tea was brought in to specifically get revenge on one of the three people they wanted to get revenge on, and it was this was having the special branch, whose whose powers at a certain time in history was specifically to take care of the royal family, get back at them for what they have done, and. There's elements within the case that allude to that, and these are elements that nobody has else nobody has, you know, explained properly together, and they just come up with little patchwork pieces here and there. So, you know, in for, as far as I believe within my own theory, and I'm open to anything that contradicts my theory, Tumble Tea was nothing but a patsy, and once he was finally confronted on these murders. He fled the country because, you know, the police and the special branch, which by that time were together because Monroe was back in charge, 
uh, had finally exhausted everything. They, they couldn't do anything else. And the murders were just continuing, and they finally put this guy in jail. You know, you're talking about arresting a guy who was followed by the special branch for Irish terrorist, you know, terrorism and arrested for homosexual acts. That's almost unheard of. It's almost unheard of to arrest a guy you suspect of terrorism for homosexual acts unless there's m something more to this guy and you possibly want to get s more information out of it. Now, I personally think Tumble T was not bailed. And when he was arrested on the 7th, he remained in jail to the 14th. And that let them know that he was not the only murderer, if he was the murderer at all. And that's why he was followed to New York, because they still thought he was connected somehow. And they thought he would lead them to the, to the people who were actually responsible for the Jack the Ripper murders. And I think that that was set up specifically by my two people. And they played the person to a T. And that person who was one of the three they were getting revenge on was Robert Anderson. And you believe that um, the clue that Anderson um, was the one they were targeting, uh, this is similar to Stephen Knight's theory uh, in, in a way, uh, where uh, he has uh, Sicker implicating Jewett and um, yeah. Anderson involved. Um, do you believe uh, the, uh, the clue to Anderson being the targeted of... of uh, of the murders uh, is the the Goldson Street graffito. Well, I think that's one of them, and you know, you you can argue, and people have argued that, uh, you know, you can argue for years over the word Jews, J U W E S, and I think they're missing the bigger picture. That the word at one time did mean what it meant, regardless of whether it was in use in English Freemasonry at this time, it did mean what it meant, and. There is no sense to a Freemason committing these murders, then leaving behind a message that implicates his group in the murders. Therefore, you have to reevaluate how you read the message. And when you read the message, the message doesn't say that the Freemasons did it. The message says that the Freemasons are people who will not get away with what they've done. You know, the Freemasons are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. This is a message that doesn't really say anything about the murders. It more of line, it more is indicting them for something that they've done. Now, what did they do? I think I know, but a lot of people don't think of it like that. They see the, they see the message and they say, well, it couldn't have been left by the murderer, even though there's the direct clue underneath. And it was an, it was an illiterate which who spelled the Jews wrong, which furthers the lunatic theory which doesn't lead anywhere or you can take the message and say well let me reevaluate how the message reads and when you reevaluate how the message reads I read it as almost having nothing to do with the actual murders but more of a message saying you're not you guys aren't getting away with what you did and if you read the Jews into it they're talking about three Freemasons now when you talk about three Freemasons you have to go back and say, well, wait a minute. Is it possible that my two suspects were Freemasons? And the answer is no. And there's a reason for that, because both of them were atheists. And you couldn't be a Freemason if you're an atheist. So then you have to argue, well, well, how does that work? Is there something that happened, or is there some kind of animosity between my two suspects 
and the Freemasons, and that's where you develop the theory. And in my theory, there, there's loads of stuff, and everything fits, and it puts it brings together so much in the case that nobody that people fail to comment on, that just go by the wayside. So you know, I I, I think the Goulston Street Graffito is important in understanding what it truly means and why it was written versus just a message left by the murderer. Because when you say it's just a message left by the murderer, people run with it and are in, I, I feel are interpreting it the wrong way. All right. Well, um, it's a very complex theory um, that, that you've constructed, um, as, as you are well, well aware. Right, Stan? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually much more complex than... I've even presented, and I think one of the main reasons for that is the standard A, B, C, and D theory doesn't work. It hasn't worked for a hundred years. It hasn't produced anything. All it produces is books, and these books, which are you know are good, but they don't produce what you want. So if you want to go A, B, C, and D and get no production out of it, that's your that's everyone's prerogative but if you want to go a b c d all the way to z and then maybe even a little past that maybe you maybe there is some production out of it and some progression of the case and i'm not saying that i'm 100 percent correct there's no way that anyone will get every single aspect correctly i think what you have to do right now is have people who are challenging standard opinion right now and going after the most amount of unknown information within their theory with obviously without changing any evidence and I feel that as of right now my theory which isn't out but you know is, is you know being courted is perhaps the book that challenges and answers the most unanswerable information on the case the the amount of information that is answered on this case I think will change the way people look at these murders and um, is is your book written already? Because um, I recall on when we interviewed you um, a month or so ago, um, you uh, said that that uh, initially your your suspect book was going to be the uh, the Sickert Stephen theory. So yes. Um, so is your book on the case uh, done and ready, or or is this something well, that you're still uh, working on, or? When I originally submitted my transcript for the book that was eventually published, uh, I submitted a 530-page transcript, and they obviously uh, they had a problem, and they went and cut 200 pages out of it to produce a book. So I think one of the problems with a lot of books in the field is that they either focus on one or the other. They don't bring everything together. And I tried to produce the book that did that and ran into the unfortunate the unfortunates of the publishing world where they couldn't afford <clears throat> excuse me or they couldn't uh, viably put out a 530 page book that covered everything on the case so they I don't want to say gutted but we took a, a part of the guts of it and made the suspect book and now the book's still written it's just a matter of you know I'm I'm presenting it to publishers and I'm trying to you know get some interest behind it and I've actually tailored it in a little different way uh, and you know it, I want to say it's written 
with the understanding that in a, in a in a month it can be tightened to to be ready for an edit for an editor. Well, I do hope that it gets published. And um, thank you. If if um, and I also hope that if you have any problems publishing it, you maybe uh, you can. I know that you're starting to have a disdain towards message boards, but there, um, I, I'd hope that there would be some kind of um, media uh, that where you would be able to put up pieces of it um, for us to read. Because that, it, as you said, it, it, it's um, it's it's hard to follow when you're speaking about it, um, and and it's something that that you say is easier to understand once you read it. And and I do hope that we're all given the opportunity to read it. And uh, I think if I can just say it's it's I feel the equivalent of speaking the theory as reading a book with twelve footnotes per page. It's it's all over the place, but there's a reason why it's all over the place because there's so much stuff going on, and you're not going to agree with everything. You don't have to agree with everything. You don't have to agree with anything. But this is a theory, and I could be a hundred percent wrong. And more than likely, I'm not 100% right. But you're going to see the case in a different way. And there's a possibility that the theory is correct. And it's not 100% correct because I, you can't go back and learn every single aspect. But you're answering the, the standard questions and the questions that haven't been answered yet in a proper enough manner to where you can actually say this theory is the best plausible, is, is the most plausible one out there. And, you know... We either agree with it, or we're going to work hard to show why it's not uh, plausible. And and I welcome both of those attempts. Well, great. Um, and um, it, we're just uh, all about uh, an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, so I want to wrap this up. Is there are there any um, any final things that uh, that you'd like to? Uh, uh, say uh, not necessarily about your suspect theory, but anything in general. I know you're you're uh, going to be um, a semi-regular on on the podcast, and I'm glad to have you on um, th- uh, that. And I appreciate you sharing. I think uh, maybe more of your theory today than than I don't know that if you've ever made public before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- yeah, I, th- I think I've delved more into this than uh, than I have in the past. And you know, I think there have been about five or six different. Uh, events such as this where I've given bits and pieces and you know again if Bruce Paley had come on and talked for 20 minutes on his theory without reading it and understanding all the background and all the history of it you know it becomes a little convoluted but you know I thank you for giving me the the outlet to do it and I think you know this is a great new approach to uh, to gathering information and uh, I, I just feel I, I feel strongly about the case in in the fact that I understand people want to consider this an academic endeavor, and I don't think it's ever going to be considered an academic endeavor until Ripperology turns its own self on its ear and really analyzes what's wrong with the field. And when you understand what's wrong with the field then you have a, an outsider's approach as to what they're seeing. Because when you come in, into it, this is what I like to do, and somebody should respect it. Well, that's not enough for people. You really have to qualify it. And I think there's too much 
non-qualifying going on out there, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers, but, you know, too many things are said, <coughs> excuse me, too many things are said without the ability to qualify what you're saying to make this an academic field, and I, I hope that one day that can be rectified, and I'd love to be, you know, part of it, and I, I feel that I am a part of this field because I did write a book, I will write another book, and I already have plans for a third book on the philosophy of it, uh, and I hope I never have to write that book if these errors get corrected. Um, well, I thank you for being so open with us today and um, telling us your opinions on on ripperology in the field and your suspect theory. Um, so today's one-on-one -on -one has been with Stan Russo. He is the author of The Jack the Ripper Suspect, 70 Persons Cited by Investigators and Theorists. I th thank you again for being on, Stan. Thank you, John. And uh, this has concluded this special one-on-one -on -one episode of RipperCast. You'll see uh, a group episode uh, next Sunday, as always. And uh, Stan uh, may or may not be joining us. I'm not sure exactly what his schedule is going to be next weekend. But nevertheless, thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week. Sometimes.